This is Pastor William. On behalf of the members of Providence Baptist Church, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thank you for joining us. It is our joy to share God's truth, and we trust that the preaching of God's Word will always bless His people. But we humbly remind you that no recording can ever replace biblical corporate worship or true Christian fellowship. So we encourage everyone everywhere to commit themselves to the service of God's kingdom in a local church. And we pray that the Lord keep and bless you as you continue to earnestly seek Him. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. We return again to this last chapter of the last book of the Bible. And John has proclaimed all that he has witnessed. And now in these final few passages, he exhorts us to believe what uh, he has said and shown us and to be faithful to what we now know to be true. So Revelation chapter 22, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 9. Let's read the text. And, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. And and John, excuse me, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So as I said, we come to the last chapter of this book. uh, The last chapter of Scripture. And uh, in this, we see the the Spirit through John, inspiring John to write, exhort us um, to, to keep the words that we have witness the words that John or the things that John witnessed and explained to us and so I want to just take a look at this short passage here because there's so much here like so much of the the rest of scripture but there's so much here in this in this uh, in these four verses so I want to focus on this this morning and so let's just get right to the exegesis of the passage in verse six and he said to me um, now, this is clearly the angel from verse 1 uh, of chapter 22 who showed John the river of living water flowing from the throne of God. In some places, it does get difficult to tell who is speaking here, but I think this one's pretty clear. These words are trustworthy and true. These words, what words are he speaking of? Well, we know that we can say that all of Scripture is trustworthy and true. Uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 tells us, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped 
for every good work. The man of God may be complete and equipped for what? For every good work. For anything that God calls us to do. The Word of God is is perfect and profitable uh, for teaching us that. And So we can say that all of Scripture is trustworthy and true. And certainly, what it's directly applied to here in Revelation is trustworthy and true. It is inspired, as we read when we started the study of this book in Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2, which reads, The revelation of Jesus Christ... With God, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So, not only at the beginning of the book does it tell us that God gave Christ this uh, revelation and who gave it to Um, uh, to John, but it tells us here at the end as well that the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must take place. Speaking of the veracity, the the integrity of the whole book, uh, the book of Revelation. And here in particular, at the end, uh, or at the beginning of Revelation chapter 22, we have an inclusio with Revelation, the beginning of Revelation chapter 21. Now remember, we've talked about this before. Inclusio is just a literary device that's used to bring an emphasis on what it bookends, what it, what it, what it contains between it. We, uh, we saw this a lot in the book of Mark. We called it the Mark and Sandwich, where he starts with one story and then he changes and tells another story and then he ends the first story that he started. And it's to focus on what's in the middle And so we have that here. Revelation 21 verse 5 reads this way. It says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then we come to Revelation 22, 6, and it says the same thing. These words are trustworthy and true. So it's speaking of all those things in between. And in Revelation 21, uh, 5, what follows next, um, what did that one on the throne say? He said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now, just some highlights of what we have contained here uh, between Revelation 21.5 and 22.6. We see the promises of salvation to those who overcome. We see a promise of condemnation to those who continue in their rebellion. And then John hears an angel that says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carries John away to a high mountain. But what did John see? Did he see a bride? Did he see... A woman? No. John saw a city. The city. The holy city, the new Jerusalem that we read earlier that in Isaiah 65 was prophesying about. So John sees it here. And then John describes, he goes on to describe this city, the walls and the gates and the foundations. And it was a city that any first century man would understand those things and would desire 
for his home city. It spoke of security and comfort, safety. John also described it with language that was associated with the covenant people of God. But in it there is no temple. There's no temple in this city. And the people lived by the light of God's glory. And there was nothing unclean that would ever enter the city. These are some highlights contained there. And then John show or then the angel showed John the river of living water and the tree of life with its fruits. So that's what's contained. This promise of what is to come, this new Jerusalem. A promise of life in heaven with Christ, with the promised Messiah, with our God. And that's what the angel is saying is trustworthy and true. Yes, all of Scripture is trustworthy and true. All of Revelation is trustworthy and true. But he's focusing on this, this promise of this uh, eternal salvation and life with God. But more on that in a moment. And continuing in verse 6, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, the God of the spirits. Now, we know that to be God, and He's the God of the spirits of those prophets. Um, the spirits are the, it's the natural soul and the faculties of the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and John the Baptist. And now, uh, as we read, we know it's um, John the Apostle. And they were quickened. These, their spirits were quickened and enabled by the Holy Spirit. Like we read in Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Note what Peter is saying. Scripture does not originate from someone's individual understanding of events, visions, or other things. Even their events of their own life, the events of their own times. No, Scripture comes by the Holy Spirit's leading. Scripture was never produced just because some wise man or some observant man wanted to say something about God. It's not the same as those who are cultural commentators today. They may have some gifted insight, but it's not the same as being inspired by God. God gave us His Word through men who spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. To be sure now, these prophets, these prophets of God, they wrote their words using their own knowledge, using their own literary style, and in many cases you can see their personalities come through in their writings. But at the same time, it was God working in these men working through the circumstances of their lives to inspire them to write. It is the Spirit of God that is the ultimate source of Scripture. It is the Spirit of God that is working in John the Baptist or John the Apostle to write this for us today and for all of God's church, as it says, and uh, as sent... Let me back up here... Um, 
And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the of the uh, spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants. So the Lord sent His angel to His prophets to to show His servants. His servants being all of the Christians, especially this book of Revelation, all Christians throughout of all of history. What must soon take place? Now, you've probably got various translations out there. Uh, some will say what will happen soon, what must shortly be done, what must shortly take place, what must come to pass in quickness. Those are some of the translations that I've read over the uh, past week looking at this. Now, this is where people get, get wrapped around the axle about this timing issue. Um, because it's been 2,000 years. Genesis was written 1,500 years before John is writing this. And then Daniel, which uh, is, is very related to the book of Revelation, Daniel was written some 600 years before John. And what are, what are they writing about? Well, John, the apostle himself, tells us in his gospel, John 5.39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These leaders, these religious leaders, are running back and forth through scripture, studying it, looking for eternal life. And Christ says, You search them looking for eternal life, but they bear witness about me. Christ, the eternal life giver, stood before them. And they would have nothing to do. They wanted the eternal life. They just didn't want Him. They didn't recognize that He was eternal life. As we read last week, to know God is life. All of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. Much of what the Old Testament prophets were writing about was this King and His kingdom. It's what we just read in Isaiah 65. And they were writing hundreds of years before the church. Hundreds of years uh, before Christ told these religious leaders in first century Israel that he would take the kingdom from them and give it to those who produce the fruit worthy of a harvest. Well, now the kingdom has come. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but not fully consummated. And that's what we look forward to. Many were looking forward to the kingdom seeing the kingdom inaugurated, seeing the kingdom consummated. Well, the kingdom has been inaugurated. We live in that. We witnessed that. Or we witnessed it through Scripture, uh, through those uh, uh, words preserved by the Holy Spirit of those men who were witnesses to it. As John himself said, what he saw with his own eyes, what he touched with his own hands, he wrote about it. Also remember that John began his writing with a vision of Christ standing among the lampstands. So Christ, standing among his people, among his churches, working in the hearts and the lives of his people. And he is building his church. As 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is slow to fulfill, or the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is what Peter wrote about. And he's writing about, um, writing about those who are in response 
to those who would say that where is this there's this Christ of yours where's this Messiah where's this second coming things are just going along like they have from the beginning things are the same as they've always been so where is the this Messiah that you keep speaking of and Peter says he's building his church and he wants them all to come in he wants them all and when Peter wrote that brothers and sisters he was talking about you and I because we are the ones that hadn't been brought in yet we're the ones that hadn't been brought into repentance we are the bricks of his kingdom or uh, the citizens of his kingdom the bricks of his temple that the Lord has been building since then in verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Now, sometimes, as I mentioned, that it's difficult to determine who is speaking in this last passage of Revelation. But it certainly sounds like this is the Lord speaking in this passage. When he says, Behold, I am coming soon. Because, brothers and sisters, we're not looking forward to the return of an angel. We're looking forward to the return of a man. A God-man. The only the only physical part of his creation that exists right now is his physical body glorified wherever it is. We're looking forward to that man coming back. And when he comes back, he brings back, or he's going to, at that time, um, consummate the, 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 the kingdom the, the, with, the, with the bride. And then we will be like he is and have the glorified body. And we will live in a glorified creation that is free of the curse. So we're not looking forward to an angel that returns. But he says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Like a, and as I mentioned a moment ago, people get wrapped around the axle. About, well, do you know what I mean when I say wrapped around the axle, some of you young people? It's an idiom, and I think it goes all the way back to, uh, I don't know, early English, when people would, would ride in uh, open... Uh, horse buggies and the reins or anything would get wrapped around the axle and it can cause a lot of damage or distress or what have you. But what, what I mean by that idiom is that don't get sidetracked by the small things. Okay. Uh, not that Christ returning is a small thing. I'm talking about the language in particular. Don't get paralyzed uh, because of the lack of perfect clarity. The most important uh, point concerning the return of Christ, he told us himself in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 42 and 44 through 44. He says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you always must be ready. Always must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. An hour that you do not expect. And right here in Revelation, Christ emphasizes that point. In chapter 16, verse 15, He says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Like a thief. And blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. How does a thief come? They strike. And they strike at a time that you don't expect, because that's what they're looking for. 
They want to strike you at a time that you're not expecting. It will always be a surprise. It will always be unexpected. And it will always be quick. And that's why when it comes to this particular passage, this particular verse, I prefer the way the King James translates it. He says, Behold, I come quickly. Take the soon part out of it, because in our minds, we're connecting that with in the very near future. But the way that King James writes it, Behold, I come quickly, it describes the manner in which he is coming. And he is coming. He's coming now. But whenever he breaks that threshold, it will be unexpected, like a thief in the night, and it will be quick. Meaning, that, that the quickness in that, meaning that you will not have time to respond at that point. When the thief strikes, if you're not prepared, if, you're not, if you haven't stayed awake and kept your clothes on and been prepared for it, when he strikes, you're not, you're not ready. You can't do anything about it. You're at his mercy. And that's exactly where we are with Christ. You are at His mercy. And He offers mercy. But once He comes, once He splits heaven and comes back for that second coming, there is no more offer of mercy. That's when He brings judgment. And if you haven't already seized that opportunity for mercy, then He brings judgment for you. And He goes on continuing in this verse, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of, this pro- of the prophecy of this book. This promise is repeated from Revelation 1.3, which says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the goal of Revelation. This is the goal that John is writing towards. This is the goal of the Holy Spirit's inspiring John to write, is that God's covenant people would be blessed with an understanding of their Messiah, of, uh, of Jesus Christ, what He did, what He is doing, and what He will do. This should encourage true believers to stay the course, to overcome the trials and temptations and the tribulations that we face in this life, all these things that Satan throws at us. Blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy. The one who is blessed is the one who keeps the prophecy of Revelation. The prophecy of this book is relatively simple. We're called to obey Christ against all else. Those who are blessed are those who overcome. Remember the seven letters. Christ pointed out all the struggles that they were dealing with. And those who are dealing with them well and those who are struggling. And he told them to keep pressing on, to overcome. At the end of every letter, he made a promise to those who overcome. And what is that promise? What are they blessed with? We read it in Revelation 16.5. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And we read it in Revelation 9.19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we read about it in Revelation 20.16. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. The blessing that he's talking about is eternal salvation. 
The blessing is eternal life. The blessing is Jesus Christ. If we come to Scripture, any Scripture, looking for eternal life, and we do not find Christ, then we haven't found anything of value. The blessing is to know Christ, to know God. And this is what Revelation is teaching us. It's teaching us about this promised Messiah, what He's done, what He is doing, what He will do. It's not teaching us how to read tea leaves or how to read the omens of our modern times or newspapers. It's not what it's teaching us about. It's not teaching us about how to decipher the mark of the beast. It's teaching us how to decipher our lives in light of Scripture. How to look at the life of your, or the book of your own life and compare it to the book of life. Verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. So here John attested the fact that he personally witnessed all that he has written about. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. So again, John is overwhelmed by what he sees. In fact, he's so overwhelmed by what he sees that he repeats the error that he made earlier. In, John chap- or in Revelation chapter 19, when John saw the wedding feast of the Lamb, John was overcome by what he saw then. And verse 10 tells us that he fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who was simply escorting him through it. He fell down to worship. My brothers and sisters, it is interesting that this is exactly what Satan wants of you. Satan is an angel. Yes, he's a fallen angel, but he's an angel nonetheless. He's a created being. And next to Christ... Tradition says he's the most magnificent created being. And so he's full of pride and he wants to be worshipped. In Matthew chapter 4, remember the, the temptation of Christ. This is what Satan was after. First, he tempted Jesus to question God by challenging him to turn stone into bread. Then he tempted Jesus to test God by throwing himself from the pinnacle of the temple. And then he tempted Jesus to betray God by offering him, well, everything. Uh, Matthew 4, 8 through 10 says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms and all the glory of this world. Is this not what he does to you every day? He may not be offering you all the kingdoms of this world, but he's tempting you to test, uh, to question God's character. He's tempting you to test God. He's tempting you to betray God in your behavior, in the things that you choose to do, the things that you choose, or the um, the things that you choose to say, what you bring into your life. That was the whole purpose of his per- persecution of poor Job. 
He just wanted Job to deny God. He wanted Job to portray God. That's what he wanted. But it was God that held Job. Verse 9. But he said to me, You must not do that. Just as he did in chapter 19. The angel puts a stop to it. And he puts a stop to it with strong language. You must not do that. Like he's saying, what are you trying to do, John? Get me fired? You must not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. The angel attests to the fact that he, too, is a created being, not worthy of worship. Certainly, they come with great power, and they come with the truth of God's word. So we should reverence them. We should revere that. We should be cautious about it. Remember the pre-Simeon question, didn't believe the angel. When the angel said, your wife's going to have a, a child, he didn't believe him. And so the angel struck him mute, and he didn't speak again until he spoke the very name that the angel told him, this is going to be the name of your son. You're going to name him John. So angels, um, we should reverence them in, the, in as much as they are correct or they uh, speak the, the word of God. We should test them, as scripture says, against the word of God. So here, this angel is attesting to the fact that he is a created being, not worthy of worship, and he is a fellow servant to all who believe and trust in the word of God. And he tells John, straight out, worship God. Here, the angel actually succinctly summarizes the entire Bible. Worship God. This God, this God is worthy of worship. And this angel's prohibition should be a warning to all of us. Now, the the Jews were certainly prohibited from worshiping angels, but they did a lot of things they weren't supposed to do. They did a lot of things they weren't supposed to do, so it happened. There were Jews who prayed to angels in the way that many Catholics pray to their saints, calling upon them to do things, to intervene for them, calling upon them to mediate for them when there's a Savior that does that. Can you imagine how some of those saints, if they actually made it to heaven, how that must make them feel from that perspective? They would want to reach down like this angel and smack those people in the back of the head. He says, don't do that. Worship God. Christ is your mediator. Christ is your only mediator. And there is some evidence that this found its way into early Christianity, which is why Paul warns the Christians in uh, in Colossians chapter 2.18 uh, not to be led into the worship of angels. But this is our nature. We are made to worship. And if we don't know Christ, then we will worship something false. We are prone to idolatry. Just look at all the history of Israel. That's what got them destroyed. They kept falling into idolatry. It's not that they weren't keeping everything perfect. You know, they they were making mistakes along the way. It's this idea that they kept falling into idolatry. But we are prone to 
give reverence to those uh, who bring us these messages, give them reverence beyond what is due. So in one hand, I said reverence these angels when they co- if, if they were to come. I do not believe that that's the case anymore. I do not believe that the Lord sends angels like that to speak to us. He's given us His Word. And He's clearly said, if anybody does come and speak to you, test it against my Word. But we have a tendency to reverence those who bring His Word. In Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8, we read, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprung up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. How close they were. God did come in the very likeness of a man, the man Jesus Christ. And that's who Paul had come to bring them the message. And the Lord had blessed him with this miracle to validate that message. And Barnabas called Zeus, or Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So they started calling Paul and Barnabas by the names of the gods that they knew, or they thought they knew, the gods that they were familiar with, the false gods they were familiar with. And, when, and, and the story goes on, Acts goes on to tell us that when Paul and Barnabas heard this, they tore their clothes. But we don't have people giving us miracles today. The Lord doesn't validate His message with miracles today. The message is validated in the life of the one who's speaking. In 1 Corinthians 3, 4 and 5, For one says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. But they started reverencing these men beyond what they were called to do. We have a tendency to fall into that, which is why evangelical Christianity today in America struggles with their celebrity pastors, which often bring great grief and harm to the church. So I mentioned a moment ago that the one who sits upon the throne is declaring that what he says is trustworthy and true. It is faithful and it is real. This is the theme that runs throughout Scripture, that God is faithful and true. Remember the story of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar and his dream. Remember the king had this dream that that, that shook him. It upset him terribly. And so he called all his wise men and demanded... Not only that they interpret the dream, but just to make sure that they weren't trying to fool him, he said, I want you to tell me my dream first. Tell me what I saw in my mind while I was asleep, that you could have no idea what it was. But if you can tell me that, 
then you can interpret it for me. Because that could only be an act of God. And none of them could do it, of course. But there was one, and his name was Daniel. And he did go, and he interpreted the dream. The king had a dream of a great statue made of gold and silver and bronze and iron, and then iron mixed with clay at the feet. And it represented the kingdoms of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. And then Daniel goes on to explain it. In Daniel chapter 2, we read, beginning at verse 42, And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone cut was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. We know all that that happened. Brothers and sisters, we know the history that followed King Nebuchadnezzar. We know the history that followed uh, the history of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. We know that the Roman Empire, although it was the strongest of them all, it fell apart due to political intrigue. These prophecies are so accurate. The prophecies of Daniel are so accurate that it forces many scholars to deny the authenticity of of Daniel altogether. Otherwise, it puts them in the awkward position of denying the God that they claim has, is a, has truly prophesied through this man. They would have to acknowledge the God of Scripture or deny Daniel. So they deny Daniel. But I want you to compare Daniel's last statement there in chapter 2, verse 44, or 45, with Revelation 22, 6. Daniel in 2.45 says, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. And Revelation 22.6 says, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So Daniel says, A great God has made known to the king what shall take place after this. And John says, God has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Daniel says, the dream is certain and its interpretation is true. John says, the words are trustworthy and true. And we see this also when we read Isaiah a few moments ago. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verses 15 and 16. It says, you shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord will put to you or will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name. Where have we seen that before in Scripture? In Revelation. When the Lord gives you a new name. So that he who blesses himself in the land, in that promised land to come, that new Jerusalem, shall bless himself by the God of truth. 
And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. He wipes it away. The troubles are gone. In this chapter, Isaiah is declaring the blessing of salvation that comes to a remnant of Israel and the Gentiles. And he predicts the separation and the eternal destiny of God's covenant people from God's enemies. And then he tells us about this new Jerusalem. The same Jerusalem that John has been revealing to us in the last two chapters. Isaiah declares that he who is blessed is blessed by the God of truth. He who is blessed blesses himself by the God of truth. Isaiah doesn't say the God of Israel. He doesn't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says the God of truth. Literally, what the text says is the God of amen. The God of faithfulness. Not bound to one geopolitical nation, but bound only by his character. He binds himself by his word through his promises to his people. And he promised the Messiah. He promised an everlasting kingdom of righteousness ruled by an everlasting king of righteousness. He promises eternal life to those who surrender to this king before he returns. Daniel declares that this God is certain and true. Isaiah declares that this God is the God of truth. John here declares that Christ is is trustworthy and true. And all through Scripture, we see this message echoed. We see His faithfulness all through Scripture. And we can see His faithfulness in history. Do you see His faithfulness in your life? Does this echo in your history? Examine what His Word says. Examine your life. God's Word describes what a Christian is. Does that describe you? That's where our sense of assurance comes from. It's not anything that you've done specifically. It's, your assurance is not found in your profession of faith. It's not found in your baptism. Your assurance is found in the fact that you live a life devoted to this King. And He has made promises to those who do such. To those who surrender every moment to Him. God's Word describes what a Christian is. Is that you? If so, then you can trust in these promises. You can trust that you will see your King and that you will be a part of His eternal kingdom. If not, if not, if Scripture does not describe you, then I plead with you, just like the angel was pleading with John, to stop it. Whatever you are worshiping is a lie. Satan has fooled you. Your own heart has fooled you. Put away your idols and worship God. Bow the knee to this king before you meet him. Repent 
and believe. Be baptized, join a church, and live for a future that we can only imagine in our dreams and read about in His Word. Let us pray.